Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Serious Security Seminar live from Purdue University. Uh, our speaker today, Rebecca Harold, has an interesting background. Uh, she's a professor, teaches, and does research in privacy and security at Norwich University. She owns a couple of businesses that are oriented towards software as a service and privacy consulting. She also heads a couple of NIST boards that deal with privacy. Uh, very interesting background, has worked in both in academia and industries. Please join me in welcoming Professor Harold to Purdue. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here today and talk with you about, like it says, a, a potpourri of things. I tried to think about what would be best uh, to cover, but there's so many things going on right now with regard to privacy and to new technologies. And I've been involved with a lot of Internet of Things issues in the healthcare space with medical devices, in the energy space with smart meters, um, also with location-based types of issues. So as I go along today, please just let me know if there's something that you have a question about or if there's something that you want more information on because I didn't create this session to be you know, strictly following what my slides have. So if you want to go over something else, please feel free to ask. And then at the end, um, I have my latest book. I've also written, this is my 16th book, and it's on smart grid privacy. So I'll ask you a question. I used to teach 7th through 12th grade math and computers, too. So uh, I like to give quizzes, but this one will just be, if you answer it right, the person that answers it can have my, my latest book there. So I'm happy to be talking with you today about many different um, issues. Now, of course, uh, you, you know since, well, first of all, how many of you are actually researching privacy issues? Okay, so is this something that might be a possibility for some of you? Great, well, maybe I can inspire you to, to look into some of these specific fields because we need to have more people looking at some of these issues that are troublesome and where people are not doing anything to actually solve the problems that are out there. So, of course, we have a lot of privacy problems that are going on. Uh, the health wearables, this is an issue. It's just crazy to me that we have so many different devices that people are buying and putting on their arms and following them around and, and collecting so much data. And I'll give you some examples of what I found through questioning a, a very popular one here in a few slides. But they're doing all this without even realizing how all that data is being collected, who it's being shared with, and what it's being used for. And um, those devices are not that secure. And I don't know if any of you have done any research into the security of those devices or the apps that communicate with them. But uh, they were created generally very quickly and also with the idea that let's get this to market. We can make a bundle of money on this, so let's get it out there. And what's, what's sacrificed when people get out there? The security and then also, of course, privacy is overlooked. So we have a lot of privacy incidents. They're increasing. We're getting so many different uh, breaches. Uh, there was a stat that I read just a couple of months ago, and basically there's been more people, two and a half times the population of the U.S. has been breached over the last two years, meaning multiple 
people have had more than one breach that they've had to deal with. How many of you have had your data breached? So at least a third it looks like. And then I bet those of you that didn't raise your hand, you might have had your data breached and you don't even know about it. So <laughs> it's kind of uh, the reality right now is instead of thinking what do I do if I get breached, you need to think about what do I do when I get breached and what kind of data is it that they're going to call me about. If it's your health data, that's going to be a lot different type of thing than if it's your financial data or if it's some other type of data that might uh, impact reputation, hireability in the future, and so on. So the privacy incidents are increasing. And also, the privacy attitudes and actions that we have out there really threaten privacy a lot. I mean, it was mentioned earlier that I've been leading uh, one of the NIST groups since June 2009. I've been leading the NIST Smart Grid Privacy Subgroup. And we started out as a group of primarily information security folks, and I was the privacy person in there. Well, we recruited some of the utilities, and we recruited some of the uh, lobbying groups that work for the utilities. And their representatives came in, and they were the lawyers, of course, which is fine. I have a lot of really good friends who are lawyers. But three different lawyers who came from the lobbying groups, when they first started, the first thing they said was, there's no law against using this data that's coming from the smart meters or anywhere else. So that means there's no privacy issues. And I think that's something that you need to think about, the fact that in a lot of organizations out there, there's the opinion that if there's not a law against using data, then there's no problems with using the data. And of course, that can, can't be further from the truth. Because think about it, when are laws created? Almost all laws are created as a reactionary type of event after many bad things have happened. And so we want to make sure that we identify risk as we're evolving technologies and then identify what we can do to prevent the bad things from happening. Well, it's not personal information. That's another thing that uh, came up a lot in the smart grid groups over the years as I've been having discussions. One of the things we identified that could be a privacy issue is, of course, um, depending upon what kind of smart meter you have and how often you get meter reads. You could get, if you were doing constant meter reads, and right now in the US there's none, no utilities that are, but if you're using uh, constant meter reads, you could basically tell everything that a person was doing in a home um, based upon that energy usage. And it was uh, figured out even back with the dumb wheel going around to, to measure your energy. Uh, there was research done back in the 1980s using that to show how you could determine exactly when someone was boiling a pot of water on the stove or they were uh, cycled in on their refrigerator. Well, now it's even something more critical is that fingerprint, if you will, that can be attributed to a specific location. So when we were talking about the risk, what if insurance companies got these energy fingerprints. Um, that could have perhaps a difference on what your premium was. If they saw that you were using a lot more energy or 
They could identify that you had a really old refrigerator that was constantly going and it was a fire hazard and so on. So these are the types of things you need to think about. Not only that, but we have all of this scrutiny of the um, energy industry and what they're doing with smart meters, and yet people are buying smart appliances like crazy. I mean, they're saying, oh, this is cool. I don't know if you saw, um, it was in the last week, there was on ABC News, they did a, a little experiment and they showed how easy it was uh, for this one house that a woman had everything smart in that, that home. Uh, she had, what is that Amazon uh, tower that you can talk to now? It, the what? Echo, yeah, she had one of those, so she was talking to it all the time. She had all of her locks on the, the house all connected. She had everything in that house, the blender, the, the washing machine, the dryer, everything was there, and they showed how people could hack in and then just start turning on things. So what's been very interesting to me to notice over the years is we have these groups that are just adamant about how smart meters are horrible and they're invasive on privacy and all this, but yet if you look at those same group members, they're buying this, these um, appliances and they have no idea where all this data is going to. So that's something else that, you know, these attitudes about privacy and how to address it are really lopsided. They're focusing on one thing and completely ignoring another. And why is that? Well, in my theory and what I've seen over the years is the fact that when people have perceived control over these devices, they bought them. They put them in their home. They're using them on their tablets, you know, controlling them. They perceive that they have control over them so they don't view them as being uh, something that's privacy invasive, especially if they have perceived value from them as well. Well, I, I can get to work and notice that my garage door was open, so I can use this controller to shut it. That's really cool. Yeah, that is cool. But at the same time, they look at what someone who they have no control over, the utilities or the government, is doing, and that raises the red flag a lot higher. So this perceived control is another thing to consider when you're looking at privacy issues. Uh, that, that impacts actions that people take. Posting about some, someone else. And this is something uh, that happens all the time. Um, I'm assuming most of you are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or all of them and even more. Um, a few years ago, I, I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, and we have a great Iowa State Fair, and we have great entertainment that comes. So I took some of my friends to the train and Maroon 5 concert, and one of my friends uh, was kind of nervous about going because her husband and her two sons had gone that weekend on a camping trip, and she was in a neighborhood that had recently had some break-ins, so she was concerned about leaving her house um, there without anyone in it. So she turned on the TV and she turned on lights and she had a radio going. She said, that should be okay. Well, about 20 minutes into the concert, somebody posted to, <laughs> to Facebook, hey, Wendy, I see you. You're seven rows below me at the, the Train Maroon 5 concert. How do you like it? How do you like being alone without all the guys at, at the, the house? Uh, that just ruined her night. I mean, she got so nervous after that that it, it really 
she had a hard time concentrating and she actually went up and asked the person to remove what was a public post to Facebook. It wasn't even um, one that was restricted for viewing uh, so she could uh, think about, you know, having fun. But other people post other images and other files about other people all the time. We have frictionless sharing, meaning when you go online and you're maybe you're going to a site, you're looking for some shoes, some clothes, who knows what, there's all sorts of data automatically being collected while you're on those sites. Well, guess what? When you go to other sites then, all of that data that's been collected through your browsers, through other types of uh, metadata that's being shared in the background, that's being sent to marketers and lo and behold, when you go to another site, all of a sudden something pops up that you were looking at an hour or two previously. And you're like, Ugh. well, that's frictionless sharing. You didn't ask them to give you this information, but they were following you around digitally so they know that it's there and, and they're going to gather more data about that as you go. Nobody cares about privacy. That's another thing you hear. And a similar one is, well, if you're not doing anything bad, then you don't need to worry about it, right? people who say that I think they're they haven't thought it through because really can you imagine if you were completely open and actually uh, did do everything under the scrutiny of uh, a camera and audio I think you wouldn't want somebody in the shower with you or uh, when you're doing other things maybe that is private and plus it's it's not a matter of doing something bad anyway Privacy at its core is about giving people control over their own information and letting them have the opportunity to make decisions about how it's used, who it's shared with, um, how it's used for making decisions that impact ultimately their lives, their livelihood, and so on. And then also online data is fair game. I hear this a lot. One of my businesses that I have, um, it, which is the software as a service, is for healthcare covered entities and business associates and I, I saw there was a huge need because there's so many small and medium sized uh, covered entities and business associates especially in healthcare who really know nothing about securing information or how to address privacy so uh, I created this tool to help them and so they come to me with questions and almost every week I get a question from one of my business associate clients saying well uh, protected health information under HIPAA um, and it's 18 items plus one that's a catch-all that says anything that can be tied to an individual. But anyway, the BAs come to me and say, well, you know, we don't have to protect name or address, right? Because name and address can be found in a phone book. And since it's out there for everybody to see anyway, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because you have to consider context. And context is so important, and I'm going to go through a few slides here in a little bit. So. Uh, you can see why you have to consider context and that's something so new for most people especially if you've been just dealing with information security and following um, all of the good types of frameworks for risk assessments and so on context is something that hasn't really been drilled into uh, the methodologies that are being used with privacy you have to consider that there's also many more. Um, if there's no personal information involved, there's no privacy impacts. Boy, where have you heard this before? With metadata, right? Well, metadata is not personal data. Well, there's been um, all sorts of proof 
that you can take metadata and reveal basically the details of a person's lives just by looking at the metadata that's related to their phone calls, their emails, their online activity, the surveillance that happens to be at stoplights and on the sides of buildings and so on, and all of that's being collected. In fact, just as an aside, did anyone see there was a a headline this morning that now they're saying that the bulk collection of phone records wasn't started on uh, September 11. It was actually started in 1992 under Bush Sr. So I thought, whoa, I haven't had a chance to read through that, but that'll be interesting reading if you guys want to look at that later. Encrypt it and you don't have to worry. I hear this a lot too. Encryption alone is a great tool. It protects confidentiality, right? It keeps people from seeing the data, getting to the data, but that is not the same as privacy. So you're going to find out there a lot of people when they say you're protecting privacy, you know, are you protecting privacy or how are you addressing it? They'll say, we encrypt the data, period. That's not enough to address privacy. You have to do so much more than that. Um, if people put the personal information online, then they want you to have it. <laughs> I hear that a lot, too. In fact, there's a lot of businesses out there, and I've talked with some of them and given classes to some of them, who actually have tools that go out and scrape all of the data that they can find publicly available on websites, certainly on social media sites, but they go beyond that to other sites as well put that into databases and they resell it oftentimes as marketing databases to big companies. Right there you have a problem if you're a big company and you didn't look at the ethics with which that database was created because if people didn't give their consent to have their information used for marketing, that's a context of use right there, then basically they could be violating a number of uh, not only privacy principles, but basically depending upon the industry they're in or the location they're in, they could even be violating federal rules or state uh, rules as well. Um, also, this is another one I hear, it just drives me crazy. Too many privacy protections inhibit innovation and, and inhibit positive advances. I hear that and I think, are you, Serious? Because really, if you want innovation, create a tool that's not only going to do cool things, but it's going to be even more innovative if you create it in a way that it actually protects privacy. So it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't inhibit innovation. It should inspire better innovation so that you have a tool that's not going to ultimately result in bad things happening to the people using them. And then uh, a couple of years ago, of course, after the NSA revelations, why they said, oh, why should we even use encryption if NSA can break it all? Well, of course, you know that it's not that NSA can break it all. And also, it's not just about keeping the government out of files, right? There's a lot of other people you want to keep out of those files that you encrypt, too. I mean, there's a lot of crooks that would love to get to data that's encrypted. And if you have it strongly encrypted, they aren't going to get to it. So context must be considered. Um, and I, this is a, a pointer to a blog post. In fact, if anybody wants a copy of my slides after I've gone through this, just send me an email and uh, I'll send you a copy of it. But um, I write a lot of blogs. I have been f since 2005 or six. But it's so important. You have to think about not just the data items. And I know from 
back when I was creating systems and software, oftentimes in the specs, that's all you would see. Well, this specific type of data has to have this specific type of control. Nothing was even mentioned about the context within which it was being used. Well, now, as you go forward, you're going to have to, if you're going to go into engineering, systems or software or whatever, you have to consider the context. And oftentimes, if you get a job with a large organization, they might not realize this. They might just say, create this system. That's when it's going to be important for you to come back and say, well, tell me more about the context within which this data is going to be used so I know what other types of controls um, or uh, permissions that we need to use for it. So here, let's, let's take a, a very simple type of personal information item, your full name, okay? So when you have a full name and you have, and they still deliver them, I don't know if you all still get them here, but you get the big old white pages, yellow pages, has everybody's name and phone number and, and address in there. Well, if you look at somebody's name within that phone book, it's just a name with a lot of other names, and the context for the use of that is to be able to find people's phone numbers, right? So you can call them. That's the context within which those names are found. Well, now, what if somebody had a data file from a mental health facility that had a list of people's names? Now, all of a sudden, that context is different, right? You might have a lot of names, and it might be the exact same names that exist in the phone book, but now the context is that they are associated with a mental health facility. So now you know something more about them than you knew in the phone book. Now you know that they might be getting mental health treatment, or they might be working there, they might be doing something there. The context matters. What if you found a list of persons who were sexting with a popular politician? Well, that could have some ramifications, especially around election time, certainly. But even if you had the same names, they were in the phone book, when you put it into this context for showing activity they did, that creates different privacy risks and different privacy problems. As another example, what if you found uh, a list of names, the same names that are in a phone book, but it was names that belong to some sort of hate group. Within that context now, this is maybe a revelation. It might be a revelation if it's true, or if it's not true, it could negatively impact somebody's life. Maybe that somebody has uh, the same name as someone you know with that name, and now all of a sudden, that person's going to be treated differently because it's perceived that they're in a different group. Or what if you found a revenge porn shaming site? This was just in the news here in the last few days, too, where this guy, he's getting uh, 18 years in prison now. He actually set up a site, so after couples broke up, why one of them, and it was... Uh, Right in the 98% of them were the men that were taking naked photos and videos of their ex-girlfriends and putting it up on the site. And then this guy also had another business. And this other business was, well, pay me $500 or $800 and I'll make sure this other site gets all of those, uh, that information down. 
you watch, go out there sometime and watch the testimony of the victims of that, and a lot of them talk about the impacts, the privacy impacts, the privacy harms that happen to their lives. Some of them said they don't even have their family talking to them anymore. Some of them lost their job. So those again, what if you had the names, and, and that was another thing, he did list people's names on that site and their address. Context has to be considered. Also, something very important with regard to privacy is that it's not just about information. And most companies only deal with protecting privacy by protecting specific information items, but it goes beyond that. Uh, you also have to think about three other types of privacy. Now, one of them is bodily privacy. Bodily privacy means that you're finding out something um, about a person's makeup. Uh, so this could be like DNA testing, drug testing that employers often make, um, you know, applicants do. When you go to the, to the airport, I mean, I did this this morning. That's pretty invasive from a, a bodily standpoint. You know they're getting every view possible there. So you have to think about all of that data that's being collected when you're doing invasive things to people like that. How are you protecting that information? How are you using it? Who are you sharing it with? What decisions are being made that could impact their life? Territorial privacy. This gets into like the surveillance cameras. So you're watching what people might be doing. <clears throat> Maybe you're doing, have cameras that are out in a public place, but oftentimes those cameras get into private places. I mean, Google Street View is constantly dealing with the fact that they're on a public road, but they're taking images from private property as they drive along so they can load it on their site. And now there's even many different websites that are called uh, the, the funny shots from Google Street View and so on that people have put up that show people who've passed out on the lawn or falling down and so on. Well, what Google Street View did was they did create a way to remove an image if you found it and submitted a complaint. But what's kind of bad about that is the fact that the image is out there. And as you know, once an image is on the internet, and if it's a funny image or perceived to be funny by someone, that image is going to be copied and it's going to be all over the place. You'll never get it off. So you need to think about territorial privacy and then, of course, communications privacy. So this is privacy of not only your digital communication, your email, VoIP, that's stored on uh, corporations. If you're using Skype, why all of that conversation is being stored and accessible. Uh, and even here in the classroom, you know, the potential that somebody might have a smartphone recording everything and that's, you know, I'm fine with that today, but maybe you're in a situation where you're in a meeting and you don't want to have those conversations uh, recorded. That's communications privacy. Now, there are many different types of privacy principles throughout the world. Um, and if you've been to any of these privacy classes, you've probably heard of them. So I'm not going to to spend a lot of time on this. I watched some of your past uh, serious videos, so I know that you've gotten over this, but probably the one that people point to the most are the OECD privacy principles that were released in 1980. They were actually updated in 2013, and they were updated to reflect the newer technologies now that have to uh, really address such things as privacy breaches and so on. But 
just you know using these and saying when you build a system, build a process, you need to collect only uh, the data necessary for the purpose for which you're collecting it. That's the collection limitation, certainly. Well, we know a lot of um, we know a lot of the the mobile apps right now aren't doing that. In fact, there's been several studies that show how many uh, other third parties that the are being shared with the data that's being collected through the mobile apps. And why did the mobile apps need to get access to my email contact list anyway? Doesn't make sense. I just wanted a time app on my phone. I didn't want to do anything about sending messages to people when I go to a different time zone, you know. So um, they're collecting a lot more data than is necessary. And there's another good thing that you can look up and if use your favorite search engine and you can see this. but. Um, I think it was down in Australia, they did a, a study, or a, not a study, but experiment. So you know when you load an app, a lot of times it'll say, oh, we're going to collect this, and we need access to post messages on Facebook on your behalf, and we want to do this. Most people say, okay, sure, I, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Well, what they did was they had uh, one of their fast food restaurants, uh, the, the workers there, they had them, whenever somebody would come up and do an order, they had them ask the same types of questions that the mobile apps use. So when somebody would order like a hamburger, they said, okay, and then uh, they'd say, let me see the last three texts on your telephone. And <laughs> the person would look at them like, why? And they'd say, well, let me, just let me see them. You know, if you want your hamburger, let me see the, the text. And if they'd say no, then they'd say, well, let me look at the photos that you have on your smartphone. So they're asking the same type of questions as what the apps were. But of course, the people were like, heck no, we don't want you to do that. What was the difference? They were having person-to-person -person interaction, and they were actually thinking about the fact that here is a live person that could be looking at this, where in actuality, when they're using those apps that they loaded, they're probably sharing that with you know, hundreds of other third parties that might have hundreds of employees themselves. Um, so you need to think beyond just these principles and you need to think about how you're implementing them. Now this, I love infographics. Um, this is one I did a couple of years ago and this was when I started getting into uh, the Internet of Things. And again, I know it's hard to see right here, but if you send me an email, I'll be glad to send you a link to it. I wanted to demonstrate that as you go through the course of the day, you're sharing your data in many ways that you may not even realize from the time you get up when your iPhone alarm goes off and when that iPhone alarm goes off, uh, chances are that that app knows that you got up at that time and they send it out to whomever the app provider is. Uh, it can automatically turn on your coffee maker and even warm up your shower to just the right amount before you get in there so you don't have to wait until it, you know, it's not too cold. You go to the to hospital to visit a friend or a relative. There's all sorts of surveillance and other data being collected, especially through medical devices. So anyway, this is something I created to demonstrate to folks that your data is being collected when you just simply walk from one side of the campus to the other even if you don't have a smart device. And I guess, here, I'll show you what I use for my um, not-so-smartphone. I travel with this. Do any of you still use a flip phone? I didn't think so. I actually found somebody last week that did, but they were paranoid like me about the fact that their smartphones were collecting so much data. 
But anyway, even, even if I have this, there's still data being collected about me and what I'm doing based upon everybody else around me. So we're all a part of the Internet of Things, whether or not we have a smart gadget on our person. We also have to think about big data. Big data is another area that it's just amazing. Have any of you been working with big data analytics? Okay, so you know the power of how you can take data that just five years ago, if you looked at it and analyzed it, you would not be able to get a lot of meaningful results out of it. But now, big data analytics can take anonymized databases that are huge, mix them with other anonymized databases that are huge, and when merging them and analyzing them, they can pull out a lot of information about individuals and their lives from those databases. Um, and the data is coming from everywhere. I mean, there's so many different things you need to think about when you're using big data. This is something I tell the companies that I do the work for a lot. You know, how are you using your big data results? And oftentimes they say, well, it was anonymized, so we don't have to worry about privacy. That's why we are using anonymized data. So basically, they're using the results of big data analytics without any consideration for privacy after they get the anonymized data that they're using. And that's a fallacy because uh, we know that you can take big data analytics and, and reveal massive amounts of information about people. Well, who do, do they disclose it to? Do they have any limitations for who gets the results? Well, no, because there's no privacy issues involved. So we can share it with anyone or we can even post it online. Another fallacy. You have to think about what can this be used for. Another thing, you know, big data analytics is really cool, but is it 100% accurate? It is not. In fact, it can reveal things that are so far from the truth that if you start assuming that that is fact, you can have big impacts on people's lives as well um, when you start using that data to make decisions about individuals. So you need to think about how you're keeping that data so it's accurate and factual. How long are you keeping data? This is something that, this has been a problem with companies. I mean, I've been working in this business for 25 years and I can tell you every single organization that I've done work for and that I've worked for, they have a problem with never throwing anything away. In fact, a lot of times organizations will say, we keep, we keep data until the media that it's on falls apart or we don't have technology to read it anymore. So when you're dealing with some potentially sensitive results from big data analytics, how long are you going to keep that data? How long do you really need that data? You should only keep it for as long as necessary for the purposes for which you created it to begin with. But storage is cheap. It's getting cheaper. So organizations say, well, you know, we might need that again sometime. And this is a problem with organizations. It's a problem with government agencies as we look at the billions of records, literally, that have been collected over the years by the various, uh, just for phone records uh, that we're learning about. And then availability. Who has availability to access that data, to use it, and so on? And there's a lot of different risk involved. And, you know, I'm not going to go through all these because I want to get to some of my case studies, but this gives you a good idea of 
a lot of the, the risk with big data. And then you have the Internet of Things. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I think those gadgets are cool. I think they can really, truly have some great benefits. I mean, just think about what you can do with, and I work a lot in the healthcare space, they have amazing pills now, smart pills, so that the patient can swallow them and the actual digital mechanism in them will eventually dissolve, but as it's going through their body, it's communicating with a patch on their skin. The patch on their skin sends the data to typically a mobile app, but if they're in the hospital, it might be to a computer. So they're doing analysis with these smart pills in ways that they were never able to do before, and they used to have to do exploratory surgery and so on that could do a lot more harm than help in many cases. So there's things that are really good, but when you don't address security and privacy, a lot of really bad things can happen. And in fact, a couple of years ago, the FTC brought the first Internet of Things sanction against a monitoring company. They sold a security monitoring device and a baby monitoring device, TrendNet, and they even had a big old logo right on the side of their box. This is safe and secure, give you peace of mind. This data is going to help you uh, keep track of your, your home and your children and nobody else can get to it. Well, guess what? Somebody hacked into their devices and they were live streaming the images from the rooms where those devices were put onto the internet to many different sites. So all of a sudden now people had uh, what they were doing in these rooms and the, the conversations of their children and what they were doing online and those were being shared with others. So the Internet of Things is something that is not only a huge concern because there's so many different gadgets being created, but even the FTC just put out earlier this year, and I encourage you if you're interested in this to read their uh, report, <clears throat> they put out an Internet of Things report recommending that organizations that are creating these smart devices start making sure that they um, actually build in security and privacy controls to keep bad things from happening. And it, I find it interesting that so many of these uh, organizations that have the very risky, security risky, privacy risky devices that they put out there, they immediately said, well, the FTC shouldn't have done this. Why did they say that? Because it ruins innovation if they tell us that we should do this. And uh, so, you know, there's that, that innovation argument again that's not valid whatsoever. And there are many different location-based privacy concerns. I put this here because um, uh, in February, I actually went up to Anchorage, Alaska, and they had a surveying and mapping conference there. So I had a chance to give a one-day uh, geolocation privacy class to a bunch of folks who are mappers and surveyors. And it was really, uh, really interesting, but, um, you know, because they were they've been out in the the field in the tundra for 20 30 years a lot of them so a lot of this was very new but it's it's really uh, concerning that location-based capabilities are being used not only for good things but it's also being used for much more nefarious types of activities such as gps tracking and stalking in fact uh, this is so 
much of a concern that there was a Senate um, hearing about it and a lot of people were brought in from various groups to talk about how often these uh, stocking apps that use the GPS that people had actually uh, loaded onto their ex-spouses or ex-girlfriend, boyfriend's devices without them knowing, they had all sorts of very um, concerning statistics about that. Also, of course, um, a lot of location data is being collected without the person even knowing it. Uh, car companies, I mean, look at this year. We're soon going to have more cars coming out this year, the new models, that are internet enabled, right? You can sit in your car and be driving down the interstate, and you can be online at the same time, which, you know, that'll be pretty cool. You can keep working if you're in the, the passenger seat or if you're in a driverless car or if, let some computer drive for you. But uh, you have to think about, wow, well, if somebody can hack into these cars and turn off my car or step on the brake or step on the accelerator, and this has already been done with these types of cars, you have to think about that. So there's safety, there's security, but also privacy. Who would love to know where you've been driving and when you were there and where, how long you were there? There's an unlimited number of groups. Your employers might want to know. If you called in sick and they found out that you were in Las Vegas driving around, that might cause some problems, you know? Um, when you're going through divorce, why the, the lawyers would love to see uh, if your story corroborated with what your car said you were actually doing on a certain day. So all of this data needs to be th uh, protected. And again, like I said earlier, context. What was the context for which all of this data is being collected through these smart cars? Who's using it? Is it appropriate for them to use it? And do the people who are using those devices know that that data was even collected or uh, from them or being shared with others? Um, this, I talked about the NIST Smart Grid Privacy Group I've been leading. This is from actually a table in one of our reports and if you go out onto the NIST site um, uh, actually go out to the I think it's csrc.gov there's special uh, publications or SP reports and some of you are probably familiar with the SP 800 reports there's also NISTERS or the NIST uh, IRs that they call them uh, that's actually where I've put had our team create reports for uh, what our organization has been doing over the last six years now with regard to our research. So if you're interested in location-based um, risk for privacy within the smart grid, why you can go out and look at some of the, the NIST IRs that we've been putting out there. The OPUS research paper was something I covered with the surveyors and mappers because they use uh, the OPUS research within their work. So. I was uh, talking with them about some of the privacy issues with how they're gathering images with drones and with satellites and using them for their mapping capabilities and how they make them available to the public and to other types of organizations. Now this was an example I gave and this, um, if probably you can all remember when that really horrible tornado went through Joplin, Missouri. Um, this was actually through an OPUS system that uh, actually had 
an image of the path of destruction of the tornadoes. Now I use this as an example of something that made some efforts that were good for preserving privacy. Can any, can any of you see what they did there to try to preserve privacy? If you notice, only the area that had the path that the tornadoes went through is actually visible from a satellite view. What did they do with everything else outside of that path? They removed it. So that kept you from being able to drill down and actually see other people's property that was not part of that actual incident. So they were limiting the collection of the data that they were presenting to only that which was necessary for that context. That was to determine the damage from the tornadoes. And they removed everything else in an effort to keep the privacy of those adjacent properties from being seen. I thought that was pretty good. So uh, that's just one example of, of something that you can do to help protect privacy by removing these things. Um, NIST last year started a privacy engineering initiative. And I participated in the first one. And that was out in their Gaithersburg um, offices. And then there was another one last fall that I participated in. And right now I'm doing a lot of work for them with regard to, or starting the, the work for them with creating some worksheets to go through and create case studies and so on. But they are creating, uh, at the very beginning of creating standards for organizations to use to help identify privacy risks and also privacy harms. So from that privacy engineering activity then, here's what they've identified as privacy risks. So this is something that you look at what actions would your company take, the organization that you're at, to help eliminate or mitigate to uh, acceptable levels these different types of risks? So appropriation, that means somebody else is using someone, someone's, that's not them, personal information. So identity theft, someone's appropriated them. Distorting it, meaning that you have information about individuals or an individual and it's either incomplete or it has bad data mixed into it, so it distorts the view of that individual and bad decisions that could be made. Induced disclosure. What if you're requiring someone to um, provide more information than is really necessary for the purpose for which it was collected to begin with? Mobile apps do this all the time. Lack of security. They could be used for surveillance. That's another risk. Um, an unanticipated revelation, the way that Target a few years ago, you probably saw this in the news, they were using big data analytics to uh, look at the buying habits of their customers and they were automatically sending out coupons to women who they determined from their big data analytics were pregnant. And they could tell that based upon big data analytics and buying habits. And uh, this was discovered when a man got uh, some coupons and he was raising a 16-year-old daughter. And he found out she was pregnant through Target's coupons saying, congratulations on your upcoming uh, event. And so, you know, that was a big problem. It was an unanticipated revelation on the part of uh, her father, and it was done by a retail store. 
and then unwarranted restriction, meaning you aren't being given the access to information that you're asking for. And I have an example of that for you coming up here. We're running out of time. We have privacy harms. My, my big point about this is the fact that to date, when you've been dealing with information security risk assessment and even privacy risks that we just talked about, you're looking internally at how it impacts your business. You're looking at how it could Im impact your business uh, customer trust. It could impact your business in some other way. Now you have to expand that point of view when you're thinking about privacy to think about privacy harm to those about whom that information applies. So now you not only have to consider inwardly how your organization could be negatively impacted through privacy events, you also have to look out and say, how is this going to impact the individuals about whom this information applies? Obviously, with the, the Target coupon situation, they, they didn't think about that, apparently, or they probably wouldn't have done that. Privacy harm now has to be considered, and you have to look outward, and that is a big change when you're making a, a system when you're programming an application you start you need to start thinking about this from the very point in time that you have an idea that you think is great and you want to put out there so you have challenges to how you're going to use the data uh, beyond uh, which it was actually meant to be personal information I want to get to a couple of these one last thing and I know I have one minute left here Sorry about that. Um, the Fitbit folks. I have a thing about the Fitbit folks. There's, I have a lot of people who are my friends in the privacy world, a lot of privacy lawyers, and they're wearing the Fitbits all over the place, which is fine. It's helping them. They're saying, we're losing weight, we're getting fit. I said, well, how much data is it collecting on you, though? Oh, you know, I'm not worried about it. They have a privacy policy. Well, I went out and looked at the privacy policy, and it didn't tell me anything. Really, it was vague. And so, um, does this next one have it? No. And so I called them up. Well, first I sent them an email, and they didn't answer my email. So I called them up. And basically I said, just give me some simple information. I want to know how much quantity of data are you collecting through your Fitbits each day? Are you collecting 10K? Are you collecting a gig? Because what does that relate to that I mentioned on the principles. The uh, data limitation, right? You're limiting, you know, are they limiting the amount of data they actually need? If I, if I knew that they were collecting, you know, a gigabyte a day, I'd say, why do they need all that data to tell me how much weight I lost? But anyway, I asked them for that. I asked them for some other questions, um, the specific data items. I asked them, you know, just tell me, are you getting my, my location? What else are you getting? I also asked them how it was anonymized because they said, don't worry about it. It's anonymized. Don't worry about it. It's anonymized. Well, okay, tell me how it's anonymized. Well, I asked them that, and then I said, can I turn off the GPS collection? So I asked them all these questions, and after I was passed around to about four or five different people, I finally had their lawyer came back and said, we can't tell you that information. It's a privacy issue. 
I said, yeah, it is a privacy issue. I said, it's my privacy, and I have an issue with it, and that's why I want to know the answers. I said, you have right on your privacy policy that you're transparent with how you're using your data. So I'm asking you to be transparent and tell me how you're using your data. And so I waited a day or two, and then finally got another answer back, and they said, we're sorry, we cannot tell you that information. It's intellectual property. <laughs> so my data personal data that they're collecting from me now became intellectual property. And that's, an, that's the final thing I'll, I'll leave you with, the fact that now even with the Internet of Things, with big data analytics, that data, even if it is all about an individual, it's revealing things about their lives, it's considered to be intellectual property, and so it's not being released. And that relates directly to uh, this unwarranted restriction, it's not being released because they view that as a competitive advantage against all their other competitors out there if that ever got out. So when you're working with an organization that is creating really cool devices that collects a lot of information about people and they call it um, intellectual property, well that might be true, but what trumps? And that's my question I guess to leave you with. What should trump? Um, intellectual property or privacy. And I guess one more thing, really quick, and I won't spend time, but uh, this is a, the best interview I saw with, uh, with Edward Snowden, truly. Uh, John Oliver actually got an interview with him in a way that the general public can understand. And if any of you saw this, you probably saw it. And he also got him to understand that, you know, he, um, actually sacrificed privacy of many people whose information was not redacted or hidden when it was released to the public in the name of privacy. So it's like maybe that could have been thought through a little bit better before it happened, but you know, he kind of put it on the, the reporters. It was their fault for releasing it like that. But anyway, it, we could talk about that for a week, but I guess um, the main thing is when you're dealing with Oh, okay, sorry. I want to give my book away, if any of you wants this book. Okay, so in 1890, there was the seminal paper written for the, the Harvard Law Review, The Right to Privacy, by Samuel Warren Lewis Brandeis. What was, what was it that motivated them to write that? Don't be Googling it. What motivated them <laughs> to write that paper? I'll give you a hint. It was a type of technology. Yeah. Telephone? Nope. Uh, telegram? Nope. Was it the record player? Nope. No. Think about what was being popular back then. Lights. No. <laughs> the camera, the brownie camera. The brownie camera was being sold, started being sold widely and Samuel Warren, I think it was him, it was Samuel Warren was at a, a, a wedding reception and somebody was taking pictures there and he hated the fact that he was being in photographs that other people were taking with all these little brownie cameras. So here's <laughs> if you're interested in that. So, any questions? I know we've gone over to. 
Any questions at all before we go? I know you have other classes coming up, I understand. Yeah. Any thoughts on the fact that the person who had run that site is now trying to sue to get his own pictures off the internet? That came out today. Yeah, exactly. He wants it both Ironic, ways. isn't it? <laughs> well, I wonder too about all that money that he made off of that. Yeah, he was, but not heavily enough. Well, thank you very much for coming. I enjoyed being with you today, and I hope if you go into privacy, you think about these things. Thank you.